This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast coming at you once again. Happy to be with you on a different night than we usually record. Coming here live to you on a Tuesday night, usually we're Wednesday night, but we're thankful that you're joining us regardless of the day change and a little bit of the schedule change. I am Anthony Cassenta, joined by John Sheeran, who is in a different venue than usual, uh, a little bit of a different background. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. I'm actually in Northwest Ohio right now. I don't know if you consider Toledo, the general Toledo area, if that's Lions country or if that's still Browns country, but it's definitely not Bengals country right now. It border, borders that, right? right yeah. That yeah. Well, happy to have you with us, man. Um, for for once in what seems like months, we don't really have a guest this week, so our listeners are relegated to listening to just you and I, my friend. Um, that does not mean we do not have future guests lined up, but we just have a week off where we're just going to, it's going to be you and I talking some bangles. Last week we had Marcus Bailey. We've had a lot of different guys on our show over the past handful of weeks, as have the other guys in our podcast channel, the Orange is the New Black podcast by Ace and Zim. By the way, Zim, I'm, I'm wearing your shirt, buddy. Thank you for the shirt. Um, they've had Hushmanzada and Willie Anderson and Jeff Blake recently. They've just had a string of them, which is pretty cool. Matt Minnick's had some special guests as well on Chalk Talk episodes. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been a good run for our channel, but we're letting the dust settle from everything. We're coming at you. We're going to go through a number of different items. Number one, we're going to go through a little bit of a what if scenario, in terms of a historical situation or historical situations with the Cincinnati Bengals. We're going to talk about a specific free agent acquisition on the offensive line and a should they, shouldn't they argument or debate will ensue in terms of signing that player. And we'll continue our nine for nine positional preview series. John's taking the lead on that. And because we're going to be talking about a free agent offensive lineman, we're going to go with the offensive line this week and go through the preview. As usual, you can get this show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. You can get it on, uh, I said iTunes, but you can also get it on iHeartRadio, Megaphone, Stitcher, Spotify, all that good stuff. YouTube, it's on CincyJungle.com. So subscribe to the channels, get the show how you can, leave us a review and join us live whenever you are able. John, this is a little bit of a... I don't want to say a, a slow time because rookies are kind of getting ingrained in some things with the Cincinnati Bengals and um, even with the unique atmosphere of everything, they're doing some meetings, they're learning the playbooks, they're doing all of that kind of stuff, which is kind of a rookie mini camp type of thing. But news is still a little slow because there's no real on-field sessions. We're not getting actual on-field looks at some of these guys. So because of that, we wanted to go through a what if scenario and it's and it they are two what if scenarios that have been discussed about a lot but we're going to put our own little spin on it um and and a lot of podcasts within the SB Nation network have been doing some what if series so of course the big one would be what if one of the big topics is what if x player hasn't been it wasn't injured during a specific period of time what would have happened with your team well the two that really come to mind in this with, with the Cincinnati Bengals and, and in recent history, of course, Carson Palmer, his knee injury in 05 in that wild card game against the Steelers, 
and Andy Dalton's thumb injury in 2015, late in the year, it wasn't in the playoff game, but late in the year to cause him, by the way, against the Steelers as well, and caused him to miss the game, the playoff game against the Steelers that the Bengals ultimately lost. We know that was a very infamous game in their history. Before we get to kind of a different framework of the what if argument, I kind of wanted to get your overarching thoughts on both of those teams and both of those injuries in that situation um, with Palmer's injury, what could have been, and Andy Dalton, and what could have been in 2015. So I think we have to both evaluate these teams with like the, the starting quarterback healthy for that playoff game because ultimately you had two backups you know, playing in that game, and that's ultimately one of the main reasons why they lost. Um, but with Carson Palmer – Leading that offense with, like, you, you can compare the offensive lines of those two teams. And, you know, the 2015 team had Russell Bowden at center, 20, 2005 team had Rich Bram. So, you know, that, that offensive line in 2005 had five very good starters all throughout, you know, all down the line. They didn't really have a tight end that could compete with Tyler Eifert, but your top three receivers of Chad Johnson, who I believe was, he was either an all pro that year, or it was the year before he started making a couple all pro uh, squads, TJ Hushmanzana and Chris Henry. And then Rudy Johnson's running back. That's, it, 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 in my opinion, it rivals very closely of some of those dominant Colts offenses when you had Peyton Manning, Marvin Harrison, Reggie Wayne, Dallas Clark, and those offensive linemen. Like when you talk about just the 2000s in general, that's what maybe one of the most stacked offenses in general in, of that decade. And I think the main thing that separates the two is, is the defenses. Like you have 2015, which is a more well rounded defense. You have two edge rushers, or you have two defensive linemen. With over 70 pressures that season in Carl Stenlab and Geno Atkins, the 2005 defense. I remember us talking about that defense in general in the past on this on this program. Is that they were really relying on turnovers. They, they didn't, you know, there, there were games where they would give up, you know, 30 almost 40 points a game, but you know they would keep the offense. They would allow the offense to still win them because the defense was very opportunistic and was able to get the ball back in key situations. And whenever that offense had the ball, like they were a threat to score at any time. So. There were different teams in that sense where the offense is more stacked, but you could rely on the 2015 defense on a more consistent basis. That's kind of the, I mean, it's hard to argue with anything you said there. The, the 2015 team was, I think everyone could agree that it was more well-rounded in terms of being able to limit points, limit uh, on defense, uh, get after the quarterback a bit more, um, you know, the occasional big play would come from Vontez perfect, but it was really kind of a, um, yeah, I mean, it, like you said, that the defense in the 05 team was a bit more feast or famine, right? It was, it was let up the big play. And then, then the very next drive, they'd come back with a cr- clutch interception to sh- set up the offense on a short field. And then Carson Palmer and company would usually take advantage of that. In in 05, that offensive line was outstanding. Uh, the the offensive line in 15 was very good as well. Um, you know, you still had Whitworth. You still had Zeitler on that 15 squad. But in, in 05, you had Bobby Williams. You had Willie Anderson. You had um, Levi Jones, Eric Steinbach, Richie Bram. Uh, very, very good collection of offensive line players. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, there, there's an argument to be made about you know, which team may have been better and which team, you know, I think a lot of people probably preferred the quarterback play 
in 05 than they did in 15. And and that's, you know, it probably, maybe even not by much because Andy Dalton was having an MVP-like year in 2015. It was a very solid year. So two very, very good teams and two teams that, you know, uh, as you look back, it's just kind of like, oh, what could have happened, man? What could have happened? What could, you know, what, what could have been if not for the injuries? Now, Carson Palmer's was far more severe and uh, I, I, it was actually kind of hard to believe he came right back that next year based on the amount of damage that was done to his leg. Um, if you listen to the interview, I, I, it was with Willie Anderson on Orange is the New Black with Ace and Zim. Uh, Willie recounted that, that sequence of events, and they heard Carson let, let out this ungodly shriek on the field. Uh, it's, it's kind of harrowing to hear Willie Anderson recount that sequence of events. And he kind of said, you know, even though we had the lead at halftime and all that kind of stuff, we, we knew that we just could, weren't going to win that game without Carson Palmer. So, you know, there a lot of what ifs, a lot of people say, okay, in, in 05 had Carson not been hurt, not only would they have beaten the Pittsburgh Steelers at home, but they would have also, potentially gone to and or won the Super Bowl. I don't hear as many people necessarily say that in 15, maybe because Andy Dalton didn't get hurt in that game or what have you. But it, I, I, where we're going with this is what what team do you think maybe had a better shot at going all the way? That's kind of the what if. You know, what if Carson Palmer was healthy? What if Andy Dalton was healthy in 15? Those two teams – are primed here. There's not the freak injuries. Thank you again, Steelers. There's not the freak injuries that occurred to both of those guys at different points in the season. Do you, I mean, is there a, you know, a Bengals curse that is inevitably going to, to occur where they go, were they going to stumble against the Steelers regardless, like they always do. Um, or were these teams primed and the way the quarterbacks were playing, were they both ready to make a pretty, Pretty far run. And what I want to bring up before you go on, John, I'm going to bring up a little bit. I'm going to do some research on some of the bracketing of those years. And you can, we can kind of see who both of those squads would have faced theoretically uh, had they had they gotten past that first round. Right. So j- just quickly searching, and Anthony will bring this up for our live viewers to look. Had that 05 team been the Steelers, um, they were the three seeds. So they would have played the number two seed Denver Broncos at mile high, which is always hard to play there on the road and especially in a playoff atmosphere. And that would have been, you know, coming off their first playoff win in at the time, 15 or 16 years. So, you know, it, the emotions would obviously be very high. You're, you exceed a level of success that you haven't in almost a generation's amount of time. And, you know, that, that Denver team, it had Jake Plummer coming off a really good year. You had Rod Smith at wide receiver, um, uh, who who was the main running back in that team? That was Mike Anderson, a running back. Who I don't really remember that much, but apparently had twelve t- rushing touchdowns that year. Um, you know, I, I th- and Champ Bailey, who was an All Pro on on defense, and John Lynch. So that would have been a tough secondary for that offense to go up against. But I, I think about you know comparing these two teams. Yes, the defense at 05 was more suspect, but I think if you just had if you had a gun to your head and you said. I need a quarterback in a primetime game to, to lead a game-winning drive or just play consistently for four quarters, and it was between Carson Palmer and Andy Dalton. Regardless of how well Andy Dalton was playing throughout the regular season that year, 
I would take Carson Palmer in a hypothetical situation. And, you know, I understand Dalton played extremely well in 2015. That's, that's, it was undoubtedly his best year. He was definitely in the MVP conversation. What's a, a weird irony here is that if you look at the numbers that matter in 2015 from a quarterback production standpoint, Carson Palmer kind of played better than Andy Dalton when he was in Arizona. And that was one of the primetime games that the Bengals had that season. It was at Arizona. And I think Dalton played fairly well in that game, but ultimately it was another primetime loss. And that was the second primetime loss of that season. The first one came against the Houston Texans. That was um, off their eight-game winning streak to, to open the season. So, you know, even with Dalton healthy and playing as well as he did in that stacked offense in 2015, there was still some reasonable doubt that if he got to the playoffs, you know, some of the same issues would have arised. You, you definitely saw him take a, you know, turn a corner, if you will, in this fifth year. You start, you start to see him starting to elevate other players around him, but it was also an ideal situation for him to succeed the way he did. With Palmer, I don't think you ever had that doubt. You, you know, he was a first overall pick in his second year as a starter. And if you want to compare offenses again, that 2005 team, I, I just it, it just reigns more elite to me. I know if you want to go player by player, you, you might be, have the argument that A.J. Green was better than Chad Johnson, even though Chad Johnson was fantastic with Palmer. But it was actually something that Chad Johnson said w- with Willie Anderson when they had their Instagram Live um, conversation about a week ago. They talked about Chris Henry. And, I, and you know, it, obviously the, the one thing we remember about Chris Henry is unfortunately how his life ended a few years after this. But, you know, that's how that playoff game started. It was, a, it was a bomb to Chris Henry. And Chad was talking to Willie Anderson about he was the closest thing in his mind to Randy Moss on just pure deep ball attacking ability. Like the, the way that he could accelerate under these moon balls from Carson, who, you know, had an amazing arm to in his own right. Just that, you know, piece to that offense is something that 2015 can't really couldn't really replicate. Marvin Jones is decent in those situations, but he couldn't hold a candle to Chris Henry in, in those situations. If Palmer was healthy in that in that playoff game against the Steelers, I think everybody with a, a mind of, of football knows that they would have won that game. Pittsburgh, you know, was the sixth seed, a, a wild card team. And, you know, if they went on to play Denver, I think it would have been a close game. But after that, then I think you you play the number one seed. Um, or okay, Pittsburgh beat, you know, Indianapolis, you know, after they won that game. But presumably you would have played, you know, Indianapolis if either the Patriots or Jaguars beat that team. But I still think that, you know, I'm, I'm taking the better quarterback who's surrounded by the better offense, even if the defense is slightly more suspect. I, I think even with the season that Dalton had, I still – I wouldn't trust him compared to, to Carson in that situation. So here's my thing. And talking about the 05 team, I, I circle here with an imaginary marker, the Colts. I circle them because that is a team, I believe earlier in that season, the Bengals and hosted Indianapolis and lost a shootout at home to Peyton Manning. Um, I think it was uh, the score. I, I'd have to pull it up, but I think it was in the, you know, 40 something to 30 something or, you know, I mean, it was crazy. Uh, zero defense was played. <laughs> uh, so I think if the Bengals had to go to Indianapolis, ironically, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the Steelers beating the Colts. If you remember this game, John, there was a play where I think Jerome Bettis fumbled. Uh, yeah. and at late in the game and a defensive back, his name escapes me for the Colts had it and somehow could not escape because he had some sort of domestic 
incident earlier in the week where he was, I guess he was stabbed in the leg or something. Um, and so he was kind of hindered in terms of his speed because that was healing up. Ben Roethlisberger just happened to trip him up. And I think the Colts either, you know, they, they didn't end up getting a touchdown when it seemed like he was going to run all the way with that. And then they <laughs> end up, the Pittsburgh ends up winning that game. Um, but I, I think that's where maybe the Bengals would have hit the buzzsaw is if, and I think like you mentioned, that probably would have been maybe more the championship round uh, based on how the seedings went. Isn't that kind of how that would have? Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't, I don't know that the Bengals necessarily would just because of what had happened earlier that year in their shootout loss against the Colts, by the way, that was the game. If you remember, that was the game that Chad Johnson proposed to a cheerleader, Bengals cheerleader on the sideline after a touchdown catch. So that's the game I'm referencing. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I think that's probably where the team would have maybe hit the buzzsaw. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a similar argument could maybe be made for the 2015 team. It's And, and granted, this is a big hypothetical because we're talking about you know, not we, we didn't even see Andy Dalton in the playoffs. And we know that Marvin Lewis and the rest of the Cincinnati Bengals are not that great in primetime. Andy Dalton specifically was not very, very good in primetime either. I'm going to pull up the bracket here so we can see the 2015 bracket and we can kind of compare and contrast that one too. Um, you know, that, that might have... My argument with it is really, could the defense have done more to aid the team in a longer run in 15 than they would have been able to do in 05? Um, again, that was you've got you've got the Patriots uh, that the that the Bengals would have faced, and potentially. Once again, the Broncos and other Peyton Manning. I, I think Peyton Manning was on that team at that point too. So uh, that's kind of the road to the Super Bowl there. How do you feel about the, some of those matchups from there? Yeah. So I mean, anytime you play the Patriots at at Foxborough, that's that's tough. So um, would, would, would that have been the, the divisional round or the championship round? Uh, let me see here. I believe they would have had to have gone to Gillette and play New England in the divisional round. Right. So again, if, and I think that was because they had, I think they had lost to New England earlier that year. Um, and I think with the Bengals, they were what 12 and four that year. I think, uh, New England maybe was a 13 and three off to double check that, but I think they would have had to have gone to New England in the divisional round had they gotten past Pittsburgh. Well, I don't think they played New England in 2015. They played them in 2014. Okay, then I'm getting confused. <laughs> right. Like, they, I think they did have a tiebreaker. And I think the argument was, had Dalton not gotten hurt, then the Bengals probably would have been able to maybe get that second seed or, or like some type of a bye. But even if they did have the bye and Dalton got hurt, then there was the argument of maybe he can come back um, or maybe he could be able to start in that game after they had the bye week. But again, I think my concerns would have been um, exemplified or just validated if Andy Dalton in a, in a playoff setting and the Bengals in, in, you know, in that case with Marvin Lewis, you know, being however many years, like 13 years into his tenure at Cincinnati 
had to gone into New England and face the the buzzsaw, the Patriots at home in the playoffs. That you know, a setting where really only the, only the Titans and the Ravens in recent years, or maybe in the last twenty years, have been able to be successful in that type of setting. I, I it would have been possible because again, that team was obviously super talented, and there was a chance that you know, like you said, the defense could have could have been able to do enough, kind of like that twenty thirteen game where obviously they got a lot of they got a lot of luck from the weather, but you know, the defense just did a fantastic job of limiting Brady. And they and they had some, you know, moments like that where they were able to you know, minimize the damage from a, a good quarterback. But, you know, Geno Atkins would have had to been basically on one and been in Brady's lap or Brady's face the entire game to, you know, disrupt anything that they had going on. Um, I, again, it's just hard for me to say, even with how talented and how well-rounded that team was, that they – that they would have been able to go into New England, and I, for, and for me to confidently say that they would have been able to beat them, I think I, I just think, in, in in comparing these two, I would be more confident, and in the Bengals rematching with the Colts, you know, it, like you said after that um, shootout, than being the Colts rather than just the Bengals being the Patriots on, on the road in, in the playoffs, from everything that we knew about Marvin Lewis and uh, that that team up to that point. We're seeing. I'm seeing a couple of entertaining comments in the in the live chat. Uh, Carolyn Reiner says Andy would have choked. Uh, some people are saying Palmer would have, you know, would have done something. David Gabbard also brings up an interesting point. The playoff game against the Jets, Carson couldn't hit the backside, broadside of a barn or backside of it, either one. Uh, nobody did anything that game, and that was that seemed to be a very winnable game. That's that's where and. You bring up interesting points about both teams, John. Where, in this in this hypothetical scenario, or these these hypo, hypothetical scenarios, plural, the Bengals under Marvin Lewis, I think they had one win in 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 six total tries against Tom Brady. I think it was the same type of record against Peyton Manning, whether that was at home or on the road for both teams. It was pretty deplorable. It didn't matter what quarterback, whether it was Palmer or Dalton, didn't matter which quarterback it was. The Bengals did not fare well against those teams. And the chances are that both of those teams would have had to face those, both, both one or both, or, you know, that's just how the AFC gauntlet always played out when it came to the playoffs. You either had to go through Manning or Brady or both. I mean, that's just kind of how it went. And the Bengals never really proved that they were very good at getting past those guys, much less the Pittsburgh Steelers injuries or not. So to kind of close up this argument, because we've got some more to get to here, you would say you felt as if the 05 team maybe had a little bit better shot to get further had it not been for the injury than the 15 team had it not been for the Dalton injury. Yes, I'm I'm pretty confident in that. And and I we, you know, we talked about the 05 defense as well, but you know, I'm looking at some of the some of those games from that year. The first 9 games when they were 7 and 2, like they only had I think one game where they gave up more than 23 points on defense. So they were and that was the Steelers earlier in that year. So it was really the back half of that year where that defense started to, you know, lose a little traction there and I guess it kind of carried over in, into the playoffs as well but again like if 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 it comes down to you know one you have more confidence in one quarterback playing more consistent in that type of setting and you're still dealing with a Marvin Lewis who was only in his I think third year as a head coach you would have had more confidence that he would have been able to overcome some of the things that he ended up struggling later on had that had that gone differently right and uh, and it's hard it's hard to it's hard to tell I guess how Andy Dalton would have finished that season had he stayed healthy because 
you know, they, they, they had some tough games to end out. I think the, the main one was that Broncos game. Um, I think it was on a Monday night when AJ McCarron basically fumbled away their chances of winning and ultimately, you know, fumbled their chances at, at a bye week appearance. So, you know, how Andy would have handled that situation, you know, could, could have maybe affected, you know, the, the perception of his season in general and how confident fans would have been of him going into that scenario. So it, it, it's an interesting hypothetical to say the least. I think both teams have different positives and negatives, but at the end of the day, I would just be more confident in one team's quarterback over the other, even if, you know, his defense is not exactly up to snuff. Yeah. I, I, hard to argue with that. I guess I would, you know, it's, it's funny. It's almost as if the 15 team and it's well-roundedness seemed to be better for the Oh five era of football. Mm. Whereas the pass happy Oh five Bengals and the offensive juggernaut that was the Oh five Bengals would have been, you know, a little bit more for, for this era's brand of football, but uh, hard to argue with that. I want I want to leave it with this, and I don't want to keep talking about negative and what ifs and all that kind of stuff. And plus, uh, we've got some some news that we're calling audible on the program. But before we do that, I just kind of want to say, what do you think was more damaging to the Bengals' psyche inside of that locker room, that 05 loss or the way that 15 uh, played out? Because we know after 05, the Bengals stumbled. They lost like four in a row in 06 to to not to not make the playoffs by the way I lost to the Steelers at the end of the season in 06 again to miss that one then 07 more downhill 08 was a terrible season then they made it again in, in 09 and then obviously from 15 you have 2016 through 2019 that have been pretty poor years uh, we still talk about the 05 with like a certain amount of pain in our hearts whereas like because we we thought that if Carson was healthy that game that they were for sure going to win when in reality like you know, at the end of the day, it was still like a double-digit loss to the Steelers in the playoffs. Whereas that 16 game, they had the lead up until like the last two minute or up until the last second. So I, I don't know. I I feel like that that 2016 loss basically sealed the deal of of that window. Essentially, the the Lewis era and, and the Dalton era. Basically, like that's as far as they're going to get. I don't think they're going to recover from this, especially if they allow these players to leave for agency and they're not going to do anything for agency. But I, I don't know. I, I just think having this discussion and realizing that the 2005 team had a better chance, I think that still leaves a bigger sting. And I, I, th- I think it, it means something if we're still talking about it like this, you know, 15 years later. So I, I think it, it was more damaging from the 2016 one because they had like a legitimate chance to win, even with everything that happened. But um, you, you still you still can't look at back at that 2005 game and. And, and think of anything different because it's, it still stings. Yeah, I, I would say 15 just because of what has ensued since, including a, a tie for a team record of the worst record last year. Uh, that was really a, a symbolic of, uh, of a window closing. I feel like, you know, because they had made a handful of playoff berths before that. And that just seemed like, even though it was the Steelers, it just seemed like that was their best chance, really. A complete team. Andy was playing well. It just seemed like, that was their best chance to really finally get over the hump. And uh, they just, and the way that they lost the PR nightmare and fallout that came, especially towards some of those players, um, you know, that to me was a little bit more damaging because you felt like in 05, well, yeah, Carson got hurt, but it's the first playoff appearance. He's still a young quarterback. He can come back. We've got all these pieces in place. Maybe the window was just opening at that point. Right. I totally agree. Well, we, as I mentioned, uh, having a fun little conversation on hypotheticals here. We had a a little change in tonight's 
order. So we're adding a little more to the plate. We're not taking away anything, but we're adding a little more to the plate. One of the things we wanted to do was to talk about with other media members, bloggers, uh, folks associated with other AFC North teams to see how they feel their team is doing after this offseason, how they drafted, the outlook of them in 2020, and get their opinion on the Cincinnati Bengals. So we have a special guest coming on in just a little bit. We didn't think he was going to be able to join us at the onset of the show, but now uh, it appears he is going to. His, uh, his name is Justin, and he has uh, a really cool YouTube channel, um, Engraven Vids. And by the way, this is uh, brought to us by a listener. He said, have you seen this guy's channel? It's really cool, and we're, we're happy to have him. He's going to join us in a few minutes to talk about the Baltimore Ravens, preview them. He actually has done some videos on the Cincinnati Bengals, some of their draft selections. He kind of does a little bit more bite-sized videos, really entertaining guys, so... We are going to have him on in just a few minutes, so a little bit of an audible, but uh, we're going to bring you more content, and we hope to get more bloggers, more media members, et cetera, to talk about the Steelers and the Browns coming up, just so you get a peek on uh, over to the other side of the fence in terms of AFC North teams, obviously going to be a very competitive division. So um, we'll, we'll be joined by Justin in just a few minutes here. But before we do, John, let's take a few minutes to talk about Larry Warford. An interesting free agent that a guard, obviously a need that the Cincinnati Bengals have. Their offensive line is is a bit still in flux. They seem to collect guards, at least they did last year, and they've done so again this year. It sounds like he may be looking at seven mil or so a year after being cut by the New Orleans Saints. He's under 30, a three-time Pro Bowler. What do you think about the possibility of Larry Warford joining the Bengals in terms of real, realism <laughs> and fit uh and and need there's yeah there's multiple ways that we can look at this let's start with the likelihood of it even happening i think from the Bengals standpoint they they look at warford he's going to turn 29 in july he's still a really good player maybe not the player that he was with the lions a few years ago but still that would be the best guard on the roster and they have to recognize that from just a pure scouting perspective they they see him and they think okay if we want to sign this guy, we want to get him on some type of a multi-year deal like they did with Xavier Suofilo um, back in March. They signed him to three years, 10 million, you know, a three-year deal with for, for Warford based on what he's looking for. That would come in the range of like the mid 20 millions in terms of total money. I don't know how much guaranteed money he would get, but I don't think that's exactly what Warford's looking for right now. I think when you look at him, who's been to three pro bowls, who's coming off of a team that is one of the big Super Bowl contenders in the NFL and the saints, you, you got to think that he's looking for some for something that can reset his market back in 2021. So you're thinking of probably a one-year prove-it deal for Larry Warford. And if that's the case, the Bengals should still do that. I think there's no excuse to, to see Larry Warford on, on the open market to have the amount of cap space that, that they have. It's not at least take a crack at it. I, and that's the only way that I think you're going to attract Larry Warford. But in, I think in their mind, they want something that you know, it's not just a one-year rental deal, not just to boost up his stock and whatever. So it already, it, it doesn't seem like a, a fit in terms of Warford's eyes. There's also the Xavier Suofilo aspect to this because everything that we've read about Suofilo is that they signed him to start at right guard, not to compete for one of the guard spots, but they signed him to start at right guard. And that might just be PR from the team because that's the direction that they wanted to go. And Warford wasn't available to, to sign at that point. But I do think it would be odd for them to sign Warford and then to just 
flat out Ben Suafila, who I don't think is worth, you know, crowning as a starter un- unquestionably. He's just not that caliber of player, especially compared to Warford. But it would just seem very uncharacteristic for the Bengals to go out and sign a guard that they want to start a right guard for three years and then to basically dump that plan after two months without him playing any snaps. So the only way that they could do this is if they do sign him for a one-year deal and then move Suafila to left guard and basically have him, you know, be the week one starter there because that's the, that's the position Suafila played and, you know, Houston and Dallas, that's, that's the only tape that they have on him. And that's, you know, that's what they're confident that because they like the recent tape that they have a Suafila. So it makes sense in that, in that way. And then there's finally the, the whole cap space issue with this, because right now, if you calculate the, the projected rookie pool, which is going to take about seven and a half million from the cap space that puts them at about 17 million for week one. And we know that even with the, the, the plethora of spending that they had this offseason, they're, they're going to probably roll over about eight to 10 million. So it's not truly 17 million in space. You're probably looking at maybe eight or 9 million left in space. If that's eaten up by Warford, you have to wonder, okay, what, what about Joe Mixon? If, if he's going to be a, a definite candidate for an extension, he's going to get more money than the $1.7 million he's expected to count against the cap this year. So if they're thinking about either signing Warford to a one-year deal or for sure getting a Joe Mixon extension, which we can talk about you know, how smart that is, but it seems to be like the plan of action. I don't think in their mind they think there's enough space because this team will, will always ne- – they'll never be – right up against the cap. They'll always leave about eight to ten million for some type of emergency signs where they have to sign, you know, a, a garden in case something happens like they did last year at John Jerry. So uh it's it's feasible and there's a path to do this without completely you know giving up on Suafila, which I don't think would happen anyways. But in terms of likelihood, I just don't see the likelihood. I don't see a likelihood either. And I, the main reason, you know, the salary cap and all of that, the main reason is because of one of the la- the la- later points you mentioned in Joe Mixon extension, possible working out some things for a long-term extension with A.J. Green. Now, a long-term extension for A.J. Green actually could potentially increase their cap space. Um, but, I mean, needless to say that I think that that is where their off-season focus is now shifting to those so, you know, maybe if you do a Mixon extension and an A.J. Green extension, that maybe just kind of offsets cap space that you would get from A.J. You know what I'm saying? Like it would, mm-hmm. it, you know, you'd raise it, you'd lessen it with a Mixon extension, but then you'd bring it back down a little bit with a possible Green extension maybe. And so it's just kind of a wash. Um, but I, I do think that that is kind of, I think that plays into this whole thing. And I, I also think that the team also likes to have a windfall, even though it's a, it's an old pre Zach Taylor practice and a pre 2020 free agency approach approach practice. It is a team that, or it's a, the idea is the team really likes to have an in season windfall for potential street free agents in case there's injuries in case there's certain situations that they need to bring in some of these guys. So, and they need to have that money to do that. They also like to roll over some money, as you mentioned, John, um, you know, <laughs> whatever that ends up being down the road, we don't know, but uh, it's, it just doesn't seem feasible to this point. I, I think there are some, some things that make it sound like a good fit for the team in, in terms of a need, but I also think we've said this so many times. They like the offensive line and who's here 
much more than we do. It is it is painfully obvious by their only addition being Hakeem Adeniji and Xavier Suofilo in the offseason. And, and I think it would be different whereas because they they went out and cut John Miller before they signed Suofilo. So they were like for sure they did not want Miller back. And, the, and then and then they basically had a whole other right guard. And then they signed Suofilo to a three-year deal. And now it technically is a one-year deal. He doesn't have like barely any guaranteed money to him. But it, it just seems odd that they would be willing to bring in another guy to compete with him at that spot. And, and again, I don't think Suofilo was a guy that you crown as a starter, but you know, based off of what we what we know, what we read, and what we can infer from the situation, it just seems like they're comfortable with him regardless of who's available on the market. It, it makes sense to bring him in because he improves your offensive line, but I, I just think the, the fit here is not as, as well um, well custom-made as some people want to make it as. Yeah, the, the other the other issue is, you know, the, the problem last year was the team collected guards and they never really did anything at tackle, thus resigning them when injuries inevitably hit there, resigning them to the, the need to play guards. Guys, John Jerry, lifetime guard, suiting up at left tackle. Um, and so that's the other thing is I, I like the idea of Larry Warford, I think, you know, especially if he comes affordable, even if it's a rental deal, whatever. Um, and it, it helps keep your rookie quarterback upright. I, I like all of that. Some of the PFF scores are pretty uh, favorable in terms of, of Warford and what he brings. But, um, you know, I, I just, I don't, I think that the team would be better served maybe looking at, at a tackle market, even if it's a lesser talent, the tackle market post June 1, post final cuts, for somebody to contribute at the outside offensive line spots instead of spending a lot of money for a guy that may be only a short-term solution in a group that they already seem to like the, the faces they have that they've collected. Yeah, and and, and if Larry Orford's a tackle, I think this becomes a much more intriguing conversation, whereas if they had an option at tackle that they liked in the draft, which clearly they didn't until Hakeem Adeniji, then I think you would have had a more interesting conversation, whereas, you know, because Bobby Hart and Fred Johnson, they, they knew who they had there, but you know they want to see Johnson more at tackle. But if they have an option where they can get, they can get a clear upgrade and they didn't do anything to solidify that spot, then I, I just think those situations are different. So I definitely agree with you there. Well, as of now, Larry Warford remains a free agent in the NFL, obviously a name connected to, in some ways, connected to the Bengals, more out of fan desire than really <laughs> true rumor mill right now. And I think also just... This is a guy that I don't know if he'll sit out there for a really long time, but teams are starting to get in their rookies and starting to get however they can in this, in this landscape. Uh, they're starting to get guys in there that they think can, um, that they, that they want to coach up and teach up right now. And then maybe as training camps ensue, this may be a guy that, um, you know, comes in down the road as an acquisition. Yeah, I agree. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. He's John Sheeran. I'm Anthony Cazenza. Happy to have you with us. You can get this show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Megaphone, iHeartRadio. Our stuff is on YouTube, as you may be watching it live right now. We also stream on the Cincy Jungle Facebook page. All of our stuff is on cincyjungle.com. So subscribe to our channels. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Get notified when we take the air live and join us then. Or get notified when our material is available after the fact. As I mentioned, 
we called a little bit of an audible tonight, and we have a special special guest with us. Very happy to have him with us to kick off kind of our AFC North post-offseason move uh, breakdown, I guess. And it is Justin from Engraven Vids. And Justin, for those unfamiliar, he's a guy who's got close to 30,000 YouTube subscribers to his channel. He does a great job covering the Ravens, covering the NFL, covering the AFC North teams. Happy to have him with us. I've been hounding him and, and not giving him a, a, a lot of time <laughs> to prepare to come on, but I appreciate you coming on. How you doing, Justin? No, that's all good. I, I appreciate you having me. How you doing, Anthony? How you doing, John? Pretty good, man. Well, good, yeah, well, it's, I, again, to be honest with you, we had a listener tune uh, turn me on to your channel, mm-hmm. and I watched some of your stuff. Uh, was not was not overly aware of it beforehand but i love the stuff that you're putting out there man just before we kind of dive into some of the questions we got for you can you let some of our listeners know where to check out your stuff and get in touch with you listen to your stuff all that good good uh well yeah i'm just primarily on youtube uh it my channel is called uh, engraving vids um where i i am a ravens fan but we just talk nfl football period on there it is mostly ravens but we just it's, it's just football in general so Fans of any team are welcome. It's family-friendly content, so anybody can watch it, um, no matter how old, how young you are, anything in between. Uh, we have a lot of fun on there. We do uh, we do a lot of live streaming. Uh, we do – it is daily content, so you will see at least one, usually at least two, but at least one video every single day. Um, so it's always going to be something new. Uh, it'll keep you updated with everything that's going on. And like I said, we just we just have a lot of fun on there. It's just it's a super chill, laid-back channel. Um, and it's, it's not uptight and all formal and everything like that. It's just, it's really relaxed. So everybody's welcome. Well, that's, that's awesome. Like I said, I have watched some of your videos since being introduced to your channel and uh, very impressed. Happy to have you with us. Normally we have others within the SB nation network mm-hmm. of blogs, but because of the quality that you're putting out there, we, we wanted you to come on here and talk some Ravens and maybe a little Bengals with us. If you, if you're willing and able and what's cool about your channel too, by the way, to our listeners, um, you know, you've got, we, we, we kind of do longer shows for our channel, but you kind of do some smaller shows. You do some longer ones, you kind of mix it up, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So there's kind of some bite sized stuff and some longer stuff. So, uh, really, really like your channel. And I, I want to encourage our listeners to go subscribe and check out Justin's channel if, and when you can, Justin, I just want to kind of start right now. Uh, Ravens kind of had a surprising early exit. Last season, I'll just twist the knife right away. Uh, had a surprising early exit, but they did a ton of work this offseason. Mm-hmm. I feel that their draft class was amazing. Some others, maybe the guy next to me, uh, does, isn't as hot on them. I felt that their draft class was incredible. How do you feel that this team has positioned itself going forward in 2020 after such an amazing year, albeit a little shorter than most fans would have liked to have seen it end? Yeah, um, they they attacked uh, the majority of their weaknesses um, this offseason. And they I, I think this this entire offseason for the Ravens, it was centered around that playoff game. Uh, and what I always say on my channel is that um, we're speaking about the Ravens. Every move that they made this offseason is remember the Titans um, because the Ravens in that game, they could not set the edge. So what do they do? They go get Calais Campbell. They go get um, they go sign Derek Wolf. Uh, they draft Justin Matabike, so guys that can set the edge. 
um, and guys that are disruptive too. They couldn't get any real pressure, any consistent pressure on Ryan Tannehill. And even throughout the entire regular season, they just, the pressure that they brought, it was very inconsistent. Even when they were rush five, they were rush six. It, it would just be inconsistent and it wouldn't be getting back there. Um, so they addressed the defensive line. Uh, one of their weaknesses and something that uh, became a hole for them uh, was the linebacker position. Last year, um, they had Josh Bynes, who is now a Bengal, and they had uh, LJ Fort. Um, they had Patrick Onwasu, who's now a Jet. Um, so they, they definitely had some holes at inside linebacker, but through the draft, they got one Patrick Queen. Initially, uh, with that draft pick, I wasn't a big fan. Hmm. Um, but because just because of the lack of experience. Um, but I did watch more film on him and, and it grew on me. Um, it took a little bit of time, but it did grow on me a lot. Uh, but Malik Harrison, he was my favorite pick. He was my favorite, favorite, favorite pick. Um, and then the uh, the running game. The running game, the Ravens clearly had the best running game in the league last year. Uh, but they, it, they addressed the draft in one of those rich get richer type of moves. We're getting a J.K. Dobbins from Ohio State, uh, a complete running back, because they, of course, have Mark Ingram. He's going to be, I believe, 30 or 31 uh, during this season. Uh, they have Gus Edwards, who is on the last year of his contract, uh, and they have Justice Hill as well. But they added um, J.K. Dobbins in the second round. And I know a lot of people weren't big fans of that pick. Um, and it did catch some people off guard, but um, they, they are a team that really likes drafting uh, best player available. They don't like really drafting for need, uh, and that was clearly one of those need. I mean, excuse me, best play available picks. Um, but it's somebody that can come in and, like I said, be a complete back because they don't have anybody that can hit the home run uh, or and catch passes out of backfield. They got some fast players now, like Justice Hill, but he he can't really break tackles like that. He's not a physical running back. They have some physical running backs, but they like Gus Edwards, but he doesn't really catch passes out of the backfield. Um, and Mark Ingram, he can catch passes out of the backfield and he's physical, but he just he can't hit that home run ball. Um, so that's why they got a J.K. Dobbins, somebody that can do it all. Uh, and they really this this offseason has just been about um, in, in the Titans game as well. The, the receivers were dropping a lot of passes mm-hmm. they were dropping so many passes. And the Ravens drafted one Devin DuVernay and James Prochet, two wide receivers who just rarely dropped the ball at all throughout their entire collegiate career. Um, so those were some very important moves. Now, I don't think they're done at wide receiver yet, um, even with them obviously having Hollywood Brown and Miles Boykin too. I, I, I just – and Willie Snead, I don't think they're done at wide receiver yet. I think they'll still end up trading for a veteran. Who that is, I'm not sure, but I just – I don't think they're done yet. But, again, I think just this entire offseason for the Ravens has been about fixing what happened against the Titans. So I, when looking at that draft, a lot of names stand out. There's a lot of names that I think were, were, were at least at the top of most people's boards when they were drafted by the Ravens. And I think that's why it is a universally loved class. I think I look at it and, you know, there's some questionable positions that were addressed early. But, you know, like you said, the Ravens are a talented team and they're able to, to kind of go with that strategy. I, I, I was really interested. And again, like the Ravens can do this because they can – you know, trade for Cleas Campbell for a fifth round pick and ship off Hayden Hurst and uh, Chris Wormley for a couple of late round picks. So they're obviously, you know, wizards at, you know, acquiring draft capital. The Duvernay pick, though, it, it, it intrigues me because when, when studying him, it, it seems like he's an odd fit and an offensive Lamar Jackson. Can, can you expand upon what 
really his plan is in that offense and how they intend to incorporate him because you know he's a fast guy but he's not really a, a guy that can stretch the field and I, I think that's I think that's what Bengals fans typically see you know in, in that Lamar Jackson offense can you kind of expand upon what Duvernay's role is to be in this offense as whatever type of you know where he is on the on the depth chart I guess as a rookie I think where he'll come in I think he'll be primarily like a slot receiver um and I think he'll end up taking over for uh for Willie Sneed um, because Willie Sneed, he's a cool slot receiver, but he doesn't have that sort of that breakaway speed, or he doesn't have that that sort of big play ability. He he'll catch the ball, and then the first person usually that comes to wrap him up, that's it. Uh, but with Devin Duvernay, I think he he has more speed than Willie Sneed, and he has more uh big play ability. He has more uh yards after the catch ability. So I think that's going to be the biggest thing uh that he adds to this offense, um more so in the future. But I think they'll they'll definitely uh use him this year too. Talking with Justin at Engraven Vids, a highly watched, highly subscribed YouTube channel. One of the kind of insider guys for the Baltimore Ravens in the NFL joining us on the Orange and Black Insider. Happy to have him. Just my quick thoughts on the the Ravens wide receiver group. It seems to me DuVernay actually fits a mold like a Torrey Smith, like uh, the the smaller fast guys at Hollywood Brown. You mentioned him. It just kind of seems like he fits a little bit in that mold that the Ravens usually like to to get in terms of stretching the field. We did get this question on the other side of the ball. And you mentioned that he is now on the Cincinnati Bengals after being with the Ravens last year, Josh Bynes. To me, he, he's been a journeyman guy. And for some reason last year, especially when I watched the two games against the Ravens, I'm like, who the heck is this guy? He's everywhere. Who is this guy? And he just seemed to play very well for the Ravens last year, and now he's with the Cincinnati Bengals. Was this just a scheme thing, the fact that the Ravens just know how to plug and play linebackers and make stars out of that position? Or was is this a guy who's kind of kind like finding his stride all of a sudden late in his career? With, with Josh Bynes, he's always been a very smart player. He was actually on the Ravens' uh, Super Bowl team back in 2012. So it was a reunion of sorts. But um, Josh Bynes... He, veteran linebacker, um, I think Bengals fans are going to really love him. Uh, I'm sure many probably really didn't much, really know much about him, um, but he, he's, he's going to be good, man. If he's anything like he was last year, he's going to be good. Is he the fastest? No. Um, is he a short tackler? Yes, he's a short tackler. And what he does, where he lacks in athleticism, he makes up for it with the football knowledge. Um, Josh Bynes, I, I saw so many plays from him last season to where – um, if he was just a bit faster, then it would have been an interception. If he was a bit mm. faster, then it would have been a, a tackle for a loss or whatnot. Um, but he he knows how to dissect plays. He knows how to analyze plays. Like I said, he has the football smarts, man, big time. Um, so that's what uh, Bengals fans are going to really like from him. And I know uh, the Bengals, they, they did draft a couple of linebackers um, later on in the draft. So those guys, they're going to be able to learn from a Josh Bynes because – Again, that football knowledge, man. When you have veteran presence like that, as a, especially as a rookie, because I believe they drafted two two linebackers, two rookie linebackers. But um, they're gonna want to take notes, man. They're gonna want to take notes, and they're gonna watch what Josh Bynes does and, and how he got to where he is. And those guys could benefit because they will have the athleticism since they are much younger guys. So if you can learn the football knowledge from him and use your athleticism, that's gonna be able to push you up on that depth chart in the future. 
Something that I, I, I actually had to remind myself of this when uh, when thinking about the Ravens was that Marshall, Marshall Yonder retired actually earlier this year, and you guys drafted a, a couple of guards mm-hmm. uh, in the mid-rounds of the draft. Who has the inside track to really take over for Yonder? Is it someone on the roster? Is it one of Ben Bredesen or Tyree Phillips who you, guys, who, who you drafted? I think it would actually be DJ Fluka, um, who used to play for the Chargers and used to play for the Seahawks too. Um, he was recently signed. Uh, it was just became official like a few days ago, but they mm-hmm. announced it a couple weeks ago. But um, I think it will be DJ Fluka. The reason I think it will be Fluka is because the Ravens, they're not just in win now mode, but then win Super Bowl now mode. So, yeah, you could go with one of the younger guys, and that'd be cool if one of them got a shot. And you never know, but I think with um, having a veteran on the uh, on the interior of the offensive line, especially being in win Super Bowl now mode, I think you're going to want to go with somebody that's been here, done that. And not to say that a rookie can't come in and put in work, but I think they're going to go with the veteran with uh, DJ Fluka. So I think he would actually have the uh, the inside the inside track right now on winning that starting job at right guard to replace Marshall Talking with Justin at Engraven Vids. Happy he's able to join us, talk a little Ravens. He'll be with us for a couple more minutes if he's, if he's willing and able. Uh, I want to. It's a good segue before we kind of get your thoughts on maybe the Bengals side of things from their off season. How much do you think that that the Ravens really improved themselves with what they've done this year? And and do you do you see? You said they're in a Super Bowl now mode. Do you see that? That's. I mean, it's easy to say now in May, but it, I mean, do you yeah. see that really in their future as soon as twenty twenty, based on what they've done this off season? Based on what they done, what they did, yes. But the biggest question now. Uh, for the Ravens, for them to get over that hump, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Obviously, they have to win in the playoffs. But the the biggest question mark now uh, for the Ravens is how coaching is going to handle these players. How coaching is going to handle games moving forward. Because one thing that I always say about the Ravens is that they can have the best teams on paper. They can have the best, a, a better team on paper than their opponent any week. But Every single year, uh, I feel like coaching, they, they lose two to three games every single season uh, just based off of poor coaching. Um, and the two games that they did it last year was in the, against the Chiefs and against the Titans. Chiefs was obviously a regular season game, and the Titans was a playoff game. Um, and with the Titans, they, they just didn't play that game at all. Uh, Mark Ingram, he was still recovering off of, in, off of the uh, calf injury, so he wasn't 100%. Um, and between Mark Ingram and Gus Edwards, they ran the ball nine times. If you you, you led the league in rushing, that was your bread and butter. <laughs> that rush set up the pass. That rush set up the play action. That rush did so many things for your, for your team. You literally broke records that have been around for like 50 years. But they went into the playoff game, and they didn't play their game. And they, there was no question why they lost. So, that that's that's the biggest question for me next on how coaching is going to be with with the players and more so how coaching is going to be in the playoffs. I do expect them to take care of business during the regular season, even if they do have a hiccup for a game or two in the regular season. But the biggest question now is how they do it in the playoffs. And if they can handle their business in the playoffs and, and don't forget about what got them there, then they can take care of business. And also one last thing would be uh, I think their biggest hurdle right now, too, is the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, they are like that final boss in a video game when you beat every single character, but you got to get to that final boss in order to to win. Uh, and I feel like the Chiefs is just that. Real quick, Justin, it feels stupid for a, a, someone who covers the Bengals to ask this question, but how how confident are you 
in Lamar Jackson's progression. I mean, he just won the MVP, obviously. Like, yeah. he's a fantastic player. I love watching him, even if he torches the Bengals on a biannual basis. But both playoff games that, that he's been in have not been exactly promising. And he's starting to get kind of like a narrative where he just doesn't, doesn't perform in the playoffs. From, yeah. from your perspective, for how you've seen him grow in the past two years, how confident do you think you know Ravens fans and the team is in him to really take that next step to lead him into a playoff push? Um, I, me personally, I'm I'm very confident in him. I can understand why, whether it be Ravens fans or other fans of other teams, would not be confident in him because the biggest thing that sticks out right now is the playoff record, it being 0-2, because that's what matters the most. Regular season is cool. Yeah, he got the MVP. That's cool or whatever. But what are you going to do when it counts the most, when to go home mode? And they've lost. But in the um, in his first playoff game, it was just – it was ugly pretty much all around. Um, it was just, it was disgusting. Um, and he just, he couldn't get anything done. They weren't getting anything done early on and really throughout the game until like the very end. Uh, but in this second playoff game, um, he did make some strides, some strides. Uh, he, he, he did improve. And I noticed the score doesn't really show it that much. Um, but if you look at his numbers, um, he, he definitely improved numbers wise. And then there were so many just drops. There were a lot of drops. Too. Now, every pass that he threw, throw, it wasn't perfect and it wasn't pretty. Um, so that a lot of it is on Lamar, too. But a lot was on the receivers as well. Um, but I, I am super confident that Lamar, that he'll be fine. And and the one of the biggest reasons I think that um he'll be fine and that he'll make even more improvement is because last season he sat out nine quarters. So that's two games and one quarter. That's the total amount of time that he sat out because there were a lot of games where he sat out the fourth quarter because the games, they, they were blowouts. Um, and then of course the week 17 game, he sat out the entire game because the Ravens just played the backups in that game, but he still was able, even with sitting out nine quarters, was still able to lead the league in touchdown passes um, and still had like 11, 1200 yards rushing. And one thing with him, he has to improve on his throwing uh, to the sideline, throwing outside the numbers and whatnot, just the consistency of it. But what, another reason that I feel like I, I'm very confident in him is because of what I saw from year one to year two. Um, in year one, when he first came on the scene, when Joe Flacco got injured, and I, and I really do think the Ravens, not that they wanted the injury, but I think they played the injury up a little bit because they just really wanted Lamar Jackson on the field. They wanted to go ahead and move forward. It was all love for Joe Flacco, but they wanted to go ahead and move forward. Um, I think I think Joe Flacco would be a good fit for the Bengals, by the way, just as a veteran presence. Anyway, oh <laughs> but um, with uh, with when Lamar first got on the on the field, he a lot of a lot of passes weren't pretty. It was rough watching some of them. But one thing that he did very well was make very very good decisions. Um, and then we saw that improve in his second year. And for him to go from what he was in his first year to go to, to be being an MVP, that's that's crazy. It's just it's almost insane. And so I, with his work ethic, um, with how good he wants to be, and he hasn't even scratched his full potential. Um, I think it's 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 almost scary thinking about how good this kid can be. Now, I know a lot of uh, a big elephant in a lot of rooms is, oh, whoa, whoa Lamar Jackson, he runs so much he's going to get hurt. His play style not sustainable. Uh, and I can understand why people would say that um, if you just strictly look at the numbers and don't watch the games. Because if you watch the games, you will see that with Lamar Jackson, he doesn't take many hits. He, he does run. He gets a lot of yards. But he, he really doesn't take many hits. 
And I mean, you could you can make an argument both ways that quarterbacks that are actually pocket quarterbacks, it's more dangerous for them. Um, but Lamar, he'll be fine. He takes care of himself. He protects himself. So um, I'm confident that he'll he'll get even better uh, than he was last year. Well, that's a scary thought. And I think some of the the rest that he got in games last year, I, I I'm fairly certain that both of them were both of the Bengals games were where he was resting for quite a bit towards the end of the game before we get you out of here, Justin, thank you for uh, your time. I kind of want to get your thoughts just as uh, from the other side of the fence as to what the Bengals have done this off season. There has been this for, for this team, at least as we sit here as fans and seeing what they've done from off season to off season, it has been a gigantic off season for the Bengals and not just because of Joe Burrow. They did a lot in free agency. They did a lot in, uh, on the defensive side of the ball, most of which you mentioned the, the three linebackers they drafted seems to be in an effort to corral Lamar Jackson. How do you feel that the Bengals, uh, what they've done so far in terms of the offseason, their outlook, as well as the rest of the AFC North, because it seems to be one of the most competitive divisions this year? Yeah, I, I do hope they um, they do get back to um, being competitive again. And they obviously, especially with releasing Andy Dalton, uh, last week or the week before last, that was, I mean, we, everybody pretty much already knew it was it was Joe Burrow time. But that was really like, okay, Joe Burrow, let's go. Show's all yours. Let's do it. Um, I do like the moves that the Bengals made uh, with whether Joe Burrow is going to come on board or not. They probably would have kept A.J. Green. They, they did franchise tag him. I am not sure if he signed it or not yet, but Either way, he'll be a member of the Bengals because I know you got a lot of love for the Bengals and their uh, their locker room and whatnot. They're uh, just the city, period. Um, they, I, I love how they they put Joe Burrow in a position to succeed now um, with a lot of young quarterbacks, especially rookie quarterbacks, um, since they they're usually dealing with or they're usually dealing with weapons that were on the team the previous year, uh, and usually teams don't really fully equip them or fully go in on them. But I like how the Bengals like really are invested in one Joe Burrow. Uh, of course, they did have a plethora of receivers already. Um, Tyler Boyd, Mr. Fourth and 12, still remember. <laughs> um, AJ Green, plenty of plays against the Ravens. Jeez, uh, I, I, I love AJ Green though. And Auden Tate, man, I, that dude, he's not the fastest. He's not the tallest. But that dude catches everything. I, I love his game, man. And then them drafting shorthanded T. Higgins um, in the uh, the top of the second round uh, and getting ready to re-sign Joe Mixon to the contract. Actually, um, oh, I'm actually in a Madden league, and I have to play against Joe Mixon in a playoff game, and he's very uh -oh. I'm a little worried about that. Um, but Bengals, they they made some moves, man. Of course, DJ Reader, I mean, that's a um, – that's a big move to get disruptive up front. Um, they also made some, I was one move that I did question. I, I, I didn't really like it only because of the money was Trey Wayne. Right. Um, I do like you taking a risk on a cornerback, got some speed and whatnot. Hasn't been the best with the Vikings. He did improve toward the end of his career with the Vikings though, but um, I just didn't like the money part. And I believe they got, um, uh, is it McKenzie Alexander from the mm -hmm. Vikings too? Um, so that deal was a lot better, but they played it safe. They played it safe with those. That that was a much more safe contract, though. Um, and if they can, I'm not sure what their status is on the offensive line, but that's where it, that's where everything starts. That's where literally everything starts. If that offensive line can be right, then 
you can set, you can put Joe Burrow in a really good situation. You can put Joe Mixon in a really good situation. Um, and if Joe Burrow can be as good of a decision maker as he was with LSU, with Cincinnati, then they may not have to wait long to be competitive again. They might not have to wait a long time. Because um, they, like I said, the weapons, man. The weapons, like you you have four good receivers, man. You have four good receivers. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm naive to the depth behind A.J. Green and Boyd and Tate and Higgins. I'm not sure who else is there, but you have four good receivers in those guys, so you got a lot of options, and you got guys that can beat a one-on-one. Or you got guys that can make, especially with A.J. Green, yeah, and T. Higgins, and, and, yeah, all four of them. They can make contested catches. So even if they don't beat somebody deep over the top, uh, they can be one-on-one with a cornerback, and they can make the catch over that cornerback. So they got a very nice receiving group, man. So Bengals, they they can be like a, a, a sneaky competitive team this year. I do think it's going to take a little time to get acclimated to the coaching and whatnot for Joe Burrow to make that that jump from the collegiate level to the pros. But I think after a year under his belt, I think more so next year. Next year will be the year where he takes a big jump, and then they'll be like, uh-oh, here goes Joe Burrow. I think that's kind of the consensus opinion and and the fact that the division is the Ravens to to lose at this point. But it does see it does seem as if the gap between the Bengals, the Browns, the Steelers, and the Ravens seems to be, you know, lessened based on what's mm-hmm. happened this offseason. Um Justin, great to have you with us. Thanks for spending. I think I asked for about 10 minutes and and you gave us double that. So I, I can't thank you enough, my man. Uh once again, I've already seen some comments, by the way, of some of our listeners saying they subscribe to your YouTube channel. So you've got some supporters it. here. Uh, where where else can people find your material? Get you on Twitter. Um, you know, I know we talked about the Engraven Vids YouTube channel, but uh, just want to make sure we, we promote what you're doing out there, man. Oh, no, I appreciate it. Um, everything, just Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, everything is Engraven Vids. All just one word, I-N-G-R-A-V-E-N-V-I-D-S. That's it. Cool, man. Well, you're you're great at what you do. We appreciate you coming on. And maybe during the season, however that may look at this point, uh, <laughs> we, maybe you can come back as we preview one oh, or yeah. both, of, both of those games. We'd love to have you back, man. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. Cool. Sure. I appreciate Pre- it a lot. Thanks, Justin. Yeah. Hey, thanks, thank for make, thanks for making the time. Hey, no problem. Y'all have a good night. All right, you too. Thanks. That was Justin from Enga- Engraven Vids. That was uh, that was cool, man. He's good, good dude. Very well, very well spoken, and uh, very good at what he does. And you can tell why he's got close to thirty thousand subscribers on his YouTube channel. This is a dude that covers the Ravens, but he had a, plenty of good things to say about the Bengals. This is why it, it's important to be objective because we wouldn't want to come on to his show and be all biased against the Ravens. That's why objective analysis, you guys, is important. Yeah. Yep, uh, I'm seeing some people. Anthony, you won't have a Steeler on. Well, we, we got to get somebody from the Steelers if we're going to complete. If we're going to complete the cycle, we got to get someone from the Steelers on. So again, a little bit of a last minute change. We've been trying to schedule Justin over the past couple of weeks. He's a very busy guy, as you as you heard. He does like daily stuff on his YouTube channel. So um, you know, he's a, he's a really busy guy, and uh, we were able to kind of sneak him in tonight. We didn't think we were able to get him, but we we locked. We kind of he said he was available last minute, so we said, "Dude, we got to get you on." So we wanted to do that. We will continue with previewing the rest of the AFC North over the next handful of episodes. So check that out and go to his his YouTube channel, Engraven Vids, uh, and and subscribe there. We're going to close up here in just a minute, though. But we've got one final segment before we do. Yeah, so we're going to continue. Our nine for nine series where we break down the nine important position groups on the Cincinnati Bengals roster as it stands right now. Uh, Last week was our first part of that series. We covered the linebackers. 
And we're going to go through the same type of structure of the discussion here, but we're going to focus on the second most polarizing group and one that we already talked about with Larry Warford, and that's the offensive line. So right now, Bengals have, I think, 13, maybe 14 rostered offensive linemen. That includes a couple of undrafted free agents. They only added in free agency Xavier Suofilo. They only drafted Hakeem Adeniji. Basically, like we said throughout this offseason, you know, this is a group that the front office and the team likes more than the fans and other analysts. How much they're right about that is definitely remain to be seen, but it's clearly a group that they want to see this year a lot of development from these young guys. And we talk a lot about, you know, guys like Fred Johnson and Michael Jordan, but there's still Billy Price there who could potentially make his name as, as a starter at right guard, or maybe just solidify himself as a solid backup. There's still, um, you know, Alex Redmond there who for, you know, they brought him back for a reason they, they clearly like him for what he does. And he, he, at this point, I think you have to pencil in a roster spot for him. So, this position group, like Justin said, when you when you previewed the Bengals, it, it's going to make or break this team, and it's it's going to be about their decisions or their lack of decisions at this position group is what's going to ultimately sway the season for some part. It, it could impact heavily on how good Joe Burrow is as a rookie, and it could impact whether or not the offensive line coach Jim Turner is here next year because you have to think, you know, a guy who basically at this point this is. His this is his group. Like the, the the majority of guys on this roster that will make up this roster is, is guys that Turner has personally invested time and even money into at this point. So this is a position group that's going to define the season in a lot of ways, and it's also going to define you know Zach Taylor's decision making, his his decision to even hire Jim Turner in the first place. It's going to tell us a lot of things about it. So right now, I think we have to start with what's the projective start starting five, and I think if you go from left to right. When you start at left, it gets a little more, it's more obvious at this point. But as you start getting to the right side, it gets a little bit more up in the air. So, Anthony, if you had to guess the starting five for week one, what would your five be? Going from left to right. Yes. Jonah, I I actually think, uh, so there, there's kind of been a little bit of a discrepancy as to where Suofilo might be fitting, um, you know, in terms of left guard, right guard. He's always been a left guard, but there's talk that he would be a right guard with the Bengals in terms of all indications from Bengals.com and uh, where you know where, chatter from coaches, etc. That they think he could be a right guard. I, I so that's where I waver a little bit, but I think he's probably going to be a starter for them. Um, and I think they, even though they didn't pay him a, a gigantic pile of money, I think they like what he brings in terms of their fit. I think that he's he's a better and more able pass blocker, um, and than John Miller was, and so that's that's what they're looking for. Um, so I I think I, I will say for now I, I guess I will go Jonah. I see a scenario where Michael Jordan is is your left guard. You've got Trey Hopkins at center, and then you've got Xavier Suofilo at right guard. I think. You still have – I think this team has committed to Bobby Hart. I think you can talk all you want about the Fred Johnson. I think he's going to have to show a lot, especially in this weird offseason where there may not be a lot of practices and a lot of opportunities for him to shine. Who knows what the preseason is going to look like and if there's going to be actual games then and if he's going to get a little t- a lot of time there. You know, I I, I think that they, they would like to see him – 
turn into a guy that can rely on as a starter. But for now, I, th- I think that's my five. The Bobby Hart situation is the most interesting one. I, I think interesting is being politically correct, but yeah, right. <laughs> with Suafilo, I think you can pencil him in as the starter right guard right now. I think with their decision of how they handled John Miller and the fact that they brought him afterwards and what they've said about him, even though he's never played right guard for more than just a, uh, for more than um, uh, they, they, that he had to play that position for just one week. Like right. he's never played that position, but they seem to be committed to him at, at this time at that spot. And they really don't have another better option there unless you want to go Billy Price or Alex Redmond. And we know how they perform at, at, as a starter with Hart, though, it, it's it's going to play on one of two ways. Either a like you like you said in this weird off season where you're not going to have a lot of live practice reps before whenever the regular season starts, you may be more comfortable having that veteran guy there who's played the position for you know multiple weeks in the past two years, and you have a good feel about what he is as a starter. And if that's the case, I think he has the shortest leash out of any of the 22 starters on this team. If he I agree with that. if yeah. he screws up, I think. They, they are infatuated with the idea of getting something out of Fred Johnson. Whereas if Fred Johnson isn't right now the, the starter over Bobby Hart, which could very well be the case, he will be given an opportunity immediately if Bobby Hart continues to be Bobby Hart. Uh, based off of what Paul Daner Jr. and Jay Morrison are saying, though, it seems to be Fred Johnson's job to lose. And I think it's going to be a rigorous competition where it's going to be 50 50, either guy could win. But if I had to say right now, based off of what we're hearing about Fred Johnson and the fact that, you know, he was the reason why Cordy Glenn was, was, was ultimately benched at the end of the year. He, they felt comfortable giving him those reps at left tackle, albeit it was against a Miles Garrett-less, a Miles Garrett-less Brown squad and a Miami Dolphins squad that didn't have a edge rusher to, to, to boast. But still, he played really well. And I think they like what he, what he brings and they like who he was coming out of college enough to continue to invest with him. So if Bobby Hart is still the starter penciled in, Fred Johnson's right on his tail, and he's going to be inputted there if Bobby Hart continues to be the, the, the lackluster player if he is. But I think right now, I think Fred Johnson might have the edge be, based off of because they know what Bobby Hart is, and they know that if Fred Johnson stinks it up, then they can always go back to him. And Bobby Hart shouldn't have this ego where he has to be a starter because he would not be getting as much money anywhere else if it wasn't for the Bengals. So I, I think based off the things that we're hearing about this, Johnson seems to have the inside track, but again, it depends on, like you said, how this offseason is going to progress, and if they're comfortable putting in a, a second-year guy over a, a veteran who has multiple years of starting experience. I, to be clear, it's not like I was necessarily saying that would be no, my no. ultimate ultimate preference, my personal preference on that. I, I'm going on past history. I'm going on some of the things that you, you know that they've shown us and what they've kind of said in kind of. So it's kind of secretive, right? I mean, they're kind of like, oh, you know, we really like this guy. I I do think that they really like Michael Jordan. They've made no bones about that. And I think that he's a guy that they're going to try and find a place for and continue to develop if possible. Um, they brought, like I mentioned, they brought in Suafilo for a reason. And it's because he can pass protect. And if you watched Matt Minnick's, Chalk Talk episode on Xavier Suofilo. There's a lot of stuff in there that actually shows that even though the PFF scores, even though some of the recent play has been up and down, there's some things in some scheme areas where he seems to be a good fit for what the Bengals want to run. Um, so, you know, I, 
I, I think that he's they're going to find a starting spot for him. Obviously, they signed Trey Hopkins to a, a, an extension, so they really like what he brings at at center. My my thing is, you know, you mentioned if Hart's the starter, Fred Johnson's right on his tail. How do you feel in that regard about the guard spots? If it is Suofilo and Michael Jordan, do you feel Billy Price is right on their tail? Do you feel uh, you know, some of these other guys, Alex Redman and others are are right behind them in case there is a slip up of of play from these quote unquote starters. Yeah, and I think Jordan has that left guard spot penciled in for him because of how he played towards the latter part of last season. Obviously, you know, the first part was just abysmal, and that's why Billy Price ended up getting some chances in there. But I, I think they they like the potential for growth in Jordan. Whereas Billy Price has more chances to prove himself, and he just hasn't done that, or he has proven himself to be a terrible player. And I think if they if they could have traded Billy Price and saved some money in the process, I think they probably would have done that. At this point, Price is just too expensive to to liquidate. Um, you know, just two years into his contract, I think they just like him as a guy who has experience at center. They they obviously need a guy who has backup potential at that spot because they don't have anyone else aside from Jordan who should be starting at left guard. Um, but I think this is a good, uh, this is a good opportunity for a segue here where, so we have those five or maybe six guys who are confident they're going to start, you know, one of I, either tackle is basically up in the air at this point, but we know that they're those two are going to make the final roster barring anything, you know, unlikely to happen. How the rest of the position group fills out though, how the, how many they keep eight, nine, maybe even 10, probably more eight and nine, but they're not going to activate all, all nine players. For example, they're, probably going to activate a guy like price because he has the experience at center and versatility. Um, yeah. Versatility. Yeah. Right. And so then you have guys like Alex Redman recently drafted Hakeem Adenogy, you know, it, you know, one of those guys has at least experience playing tackle. So maybe that gives him the advantage here, but with Adenogy, who has been mentioned in the comment section as a guy that we haven't mentioned because we wanted to bring him up in, in sort of a, a, a separate type of discussion. Does Adenogy have a shot to be this year's Michael Jordan, where we didn't really, Think about Michael Jordan being a starter, you know, in the summer last year until opportunities popped up as a late round pick, a guy with athleticism, you know, one of the only guys that they drafted on the on, or invested in on the offensive line. Does he have a bigger chance to make an impact in case maybe Mike Jordan slips up in, in preseason and doesn't look to be the guy they progress that they expect to progress into? Does Adenogy have a chance to make his name as more than just a guy that hopes to be active on game days? I think so, and I think I think like a Billy Price, even though it's not ideal that Billy Price was a former first-round pick as a backup that provides versatility, I think that the, initially that's what Adenogy brings, versatility, emergency, emergency tackle, but uh, you know, right away could, could be a guy that's in the mix for a backup guard job and, and could step in there. And I think that's where a lot of people felt he translated best go, coming from – Kansas and into the pros they just they felt that you know he's got the the skills maybe the skill set maybe more akin to an NFL guard than an NFL tackle but he does have immense experience at tackle so you know he, he brings that versatility gene that the team really likes in their offensive line I, you know I may not word this the way that I want or it may come off a, a sort of inaccurate but it seems to me that Jordan was the guy that he's got, he kind of had some limited experience himself um, at Ohio state. Yeah. He's got some starts, but he moved around a little bit. He was more this big mammoth 
really young guy that they felt has this immense potential, but they need to develop and they need time to do that. Adeniji has some athleticism, but he doesn't seem to be the raw athlete or have that immense necessarily that that clay to mold like a Jordan, but he's more technically sound. And that's that's where I feel that his his benefit, especially immediately for the team, uh, could could come into play. He he may need a little less development than a Michael Jordan because Jordan was so young. He didn't have the four years as a starter at tackle like an Adeniji. So, uh, you know, I think there, there's a little bit of a, a yin and yang there between those two guys. But I do think Adeniji could be in the conversation, if not pushing heavily for a starting role or a, a prominent role this year than definitely next year right so just looking at the group in in general you have three tackles we're confident are going to make the team three tackles that we know are tackles and jonah williams bobby hart fred johnson um identity is in a great spot to make the roster obviously because he's going to a team where he's a sixth round pick but you like to think that he's if not a log a near lock to make the roster because of how little they have on the offensive line left and the fact that he can play multiple positions and you're right he played fairly well at guard at the senior bowl for never playing the position in college. So he, that, that does bode well for him to not only make the roster, but to be active on game days. So you have a behind Michael Jordan and Xavier Suofilo at guard. And then you have Trey Hopkins, who's probably the most solid veteran that they have the most solid veteran that they have on the offensive line at the center spot, Billy price backing him up. That's eight guys. The ninth spot if they keep nine probably goes to Alex Redmond. But is there a guy that we're, we haven't really mentioned yet who can push Redmond off that spot or maybe push for that 10th spot? Well, I, I think it's a little premature to definitively say or to, to give a, a really well-educated guess. Um, if I remember correctly, there's a kid on the team. Uh, is it Isaiah Prince? Yes. Um that kid kind of intrigues me. He was an Ohio State kid, I believe, as well. Was he not? Um, yes, he so, was. Yeah. So, and I think actually, I saw a post from that was brought back up from Joe Burrow when he talked about like you know he was going to enter the transfer portal or something. I think Field Yates from ESPN brought that up. And in the comments, I happened to see a comment from a couple of years ago from Isaiah Prince. Um, so that's where I was kind of like I got the wheels turning. So, you know, that that could be a guy that. The team, I mean, he's an undrafted guy, probably a long shot, but that's a guy I, w- I wouldn't totally write off, especially if the team, you know, is keeping more of the the going a little heavier on those swing guys in the interior of the line. Prince could be a guy that, I don't know, may make some noise. Again, it would need to, uh, we need to see some things in preseason and in training camp, I think. But that's a guy I've kind of got my eye on a little bit. I think. If Prince somehow makes the team, that would be at least four players from that 2015 Ohio <laughs> State team. Technically, yeah. won't include Burrow there. They brought in Von Bell. That was Billy Price's, I think, fresh freshman or sophomore year. That was right before Michael Jordan came to came to Ohio State. But they have a lot of Buckeyes in the roster. And I think Prince was a guy that I think Duke Tobin told one of the beat writers that he really likes as a potential tackle option. So if yeah. Prince doesn't make it, I think he's that's that's why I, I picked him because of the tackle situation. And he's right. not, you know, if they go heavy on interior line, if they view him as a true tackle option, that's why I, I mentioned him. And he was in the he was in a similar spot to Fred Johnson last year, where Fred Johnson was an undrafted guy who was claimed by the Bengals in the middle of the season. Isaiah Prince was the exact same situation, only Prince didn't get a chance to play. 
you know, you can say what you want about Prince as a, as a college player. He, he definitely, he, he was like a fifth or no, Prince was a fifth round pick. I, I believe he was, a, he was a day three pick. I think somewhere. I'm not exactly sure what team. I think it was the Dolphins that drafted oh, him. You're right. You're right. Yeah. So, you know, he, he had talent to be drafted, whether or not that's because he was at Ohio state. And uh, there's type of bias there, whatever. Um, anyways, yeah, six yeah, round, six round by yeah. the Dolphins. You're right. Yeah. He has talent to potentially make a roster. And if it's going to be a roster, it's going to be this one. If it's not him, though, I, I did some more research on Clay Cordasco, the offensive lineman for Oregon mm-hmm. State. I just, I, 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 I think this guy moves like an NFL player, and it's, it, it's, it's kind of subjective, I guess. You just kind of like, you know, just watch film and, and and to see. But I think he plays a good pad level. I think he plays a good power. I, I, I think he was mainly, I want to say he was, it was a tackle at Oregon State, but I think he has a body type to be a guard as well. So. You know, we know next to nothing about how the rest of this offense line is going to configure itself as as this this summer moves on. But if if there's an undrafted guy that we're not talking about, I think Cordasco has a better shot than Josh Nibfil, who's the guy from Iowa Iowa State, who just I don't know, he, he kind of seems more like a practice squad type of guy for me. So you know, if if they do keep nine or ten, I think Cordasco is a guy to watch there. But at the end of the day, I think you have three backups that you're confident can play multiple positions. And that may just ultimately convince them to keep eight and keep one extra guy at a, at a position group that they're more confident in. Yeah. I, I saw on Twitter, you, you had mentioned some things about Cordasco um, early in the process. So that's, yeah, he, he's a promising guy. It's, it's again, if I think it comes down to, do they want to keep guys that have that swing positional versatility or did they learn their lesson from last year in their collection of guards and interior linemen and didn't have enough contingency plans in place at tackle? Uh, I think that's where maybe the numbers game comes into play. Right. So that, that, that'll do it for this week's 9 for 9 series. And let's go ahead and drop the mic, Anthony, what you got. I just want to share this. By the way, good stuff on that 9 for 9, John. And that is John's... Uh, brain brainchild creation there so uh good stuff there we hope you've enjoyed it we're going to continue on through all of the position groups so uh thanks for taking the lead on that one john it's good stuff um i just want to say this uh there's been some and i'm going to put this link in our live chat in case some people have not heard i get i guess uh Auden tate his sister uh has has been stricken with cancer um and there he has been uh promoting a gofundme account and for those who know me and john and uh and have heard the interviews with other former and current Bengals that we've had on this program that are involved in charities we like to promote those we like to uh try and rally support for those if and when available i know it's always weird asking people for money and hitting people up for money especially during this time but uh he is a Bengals player um whether or not he ever comes on this program, it doesn't matter. We just want to help him out and get him through uh, th- what seems to be a pretty tough time for his family. So if you are able to donate, check it out. Uh, send Auden Tate some support, if, especially if you're on Twitter. Um, let him know you're thinking of him, even if you give a little bit to this cause for his sister, uh, Doshe McLeod. Um, they've, they've, got, they've raised about $9,200 so far. I think they want to raise quite a bit more. So it is through GoFundMe. I put the link in the live chat. We'll put it on CincyJungle.com. This is a time that I know it's difficult financially for a lot of people, but uh, these nonprofits, we've said this before, need help. 
um, because they too are unable to do these in-person fundraisers, etc. Um, and that this is not obviously a regular fundraising type of thing. This is kind of a, an extreme situation. So if you're able to assist, please do check out the link that I provided in the live chat. I think that's exactly how we should end this go. So <laughs> I, I had something to say, but I don't want to. I, I want that to be the last thing that we all remember from the show. Thank you, Anthony, for that. Um, thanks, everyone, for tuning in live or listening to After the Facts. Um, we'll be back on a regular schedule next Wednesday, and we will see you then. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, John. Good show, buddy.